Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Uh, good morning. Yeah, so I, I guess we are on a series of our missional life, and uh, we've been tracking through holy ambition, God on a mission, healing the sick. Um, and today I've been, I've been tasked um, in some part <laughs> to, to continue to explore the, uh, the, the idea of our mission on earth, the church mission on earth, to be a prophetic witness. And um, when, when Janice was first, um, first asked me about it, uh, I kind of preempted her what she thought I would say. Um, and I was like, oh, you want me to go and uh, teach people how to give words of knowledge, is it? Um, and then uh, obviously her response was like, uh, no, I don't expect what is expected from you. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, uh, I, and actually I've been stewing on this for, for a couple of months. Some of you have conversations with me about like, what is the authentic expression of, of the prophetic? Yeah. So, so here it is, uh, but before I begin, let's just pray. Yeah, Father, I, I thank you for today. I, I give you my voice and I give you um, myself. Um, to be a witness, and I pray you give me grace to be faithful to that which you have spoken and which you have deposited. We say we join in our hearts with agreement with you, God, to give your son the bride that he deserves, that, that spotless bride who overcomes everything, overcomes the evil one, overcomes the world, overcomes the tribulations by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of her word, who held on to that even unto death, who emerges from the wilderness leaning on her beloved, who says yes to you and is compatible to be joined with you for eternity. We say we cast our mind's eye to that vision and I pray Holy Spirit in some measure today that you release an unction and an encouragement for your people that we would become taking a step into that direction for your glory. And I thank you that even with all the distractions, God, um, with, with, with across the live stream and, and with the kids and whatever, that your word would proceed and would take root in the hearts of the hearers. Um, whatever that, that, that comes from me would, would come and go and disappear. But that which you have prepared, that, that would stay. Yeah, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so... Um, I'm probably not going to joke anymore after this. Um, so it is what it is. Uh, if, if, if you think that it's a joke, it may or may not be. Um, yeah, sometimes I'm confused as well. Yeah. Um, so, so, so we're talking about, uh, uh, and, and the title is A Prophetic Witness, uh, A Church Like John. And I'm probably going to focus a bit on, on a prophetic witness for the first part, and then we'll really kind of segue and transition into what it means to be a church like John. And, and John here, I mean John the Baptist. Um, and, and before I go, I want to say from the outset that I love the prophetic ministry. I have great value for the prophetic ministry. Um, the prophetic ministry has played a profound role in my life. It's the reason why Hannah and I married in the first place. Um, uh, there have been a great value of people with prophetic giftings who have encouraged both myself, my family, and the church in general. And I could very easily preach a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 14, basically, Paul is going on about how all of you should desire to prophesy, to build up the church, comfort, edification, to, and, and it's that, it's that um, kind of prophetic ministry which we're all quite acquainted with. 
And beautifully, obviously, 1 Corinthians 14, the foundation is 1 Corinthians 13, which is love. And if you do all these things out of love, and if you have all the best unction and ministry, but if you don't have love, you're nothing but a clanging symbol, symbol, right? You're just noise. So I could go on and on about that. But if I did that, then you will not have enough time. The live stream will just cut off and I will not have time to address the key issue which I believe the Lord has put his finger on in this hour. And what am I going to talk about today? Because we're all kind of familiar and acquainted with that, uh, the church in its history. But what I'm contending for today is what I call an authentic expression and biblical understanding of the prophetic. And what is that? I believe it's something so precious that if the church were to be muddied in this understanding that we would be confused about God himself. And I say that with trembling and not lightly because the prophetic is the medium in which God reveals himself. And if we are confused about what the prophetic is, we become confused of who God is. And what I want to say is that the prophetic is not primarily about predicting future events. It's not primarily about calling out the secrets or details of your life. And, and we have all seen aspects of that prophetic ministry. And I don't want to diminish that, that the Holy Spirit, of course, knows you intimately. He knows your birthday. He knows your address. This is like a thing, right? It's like in a, in like a charismatic uh, stream. He, God knows your address. He also knows your future wife, right? Okay, but can I say from the onset that that is not the essence of the prophetic? Yeah. I, I'd like to suggest that we have, as a church, um, mistaken the form of the prophetic for the essence of it. That because the prophetic is about echoing the voice and the words of God who knows all things and who sees the end from the beginning who's outside of time, of course he knows the future. And so sometimes when we step into that prophetic gifting and we function in that, people mistake that to be the essence. But what is the essence of it? So if you go, I'd like to just flash... Um, the, the slide, I think, yeah, there's a slide, okay. So Deuteronomy 13, if you look at this, Deuteronomy 13 says, is a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign no wonder. And the sign of the wonder comes to pass. And he says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to him. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love him with all of your heart and all of your soul. Now notice what Moses is saying here. He's saying here that the signs that false prophets foretell may come to pass. And that comes with a variety of things. You can predict an earthquake. They can predict your birthday. They can predict what ward of the hospital you were born. It doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't preclude that false prophets will necessarily have their signs not come to pass. In fact, it says when it does come to pass. But what the Lord says is that the litmus test of the prophetic is the content of what does the prophet tell you to do. That if he comes and he confirms his word with a sign, but he tells you to stray away from God, you know that's the litmus test of a false prophet. Now, I want to say from the other side that the Lord will, of course, many times confirm his words with signs. And we see that throughout biblical history, right? He, uh, look, look at Elijah, for example. He confirms the prophetic word um, with signs. But the content is the essence of the prophetic. And the Lord says, actually, our response, uh, and this is the last, but this is really interesting, that our response to the prophetic reveals our heart towards him. In other words, sometimes the Lord allows some kind of confusion in the church or across the face of the earth as a test of our love for him. And um, it's really interesting because throughout, um, and this is a broad, broad topic, right? Uh, 
if you look and you chart throughout all of biblical history, the medium, the tone, the words of the prophets are incredibly diverse, right? So, so throw back with me, uh, indulge me for a second, the history. So you go back to King Hezekiah's time, right? Sennacherib is, is in, it's surrounding Jerusalem in the time of Isaiah. And Isaiah tells Hezekiah, hold fast, wait for the Lord to rescue Jerusalem. Right? The angel of the Lord will be, will be released and it will rescue Jerusalem from the hordes of Assyria. Fast forward a few hundred years later, exactly the same thing is happening in Babylon. Right? The, 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 the hordes of Babylon are surrounding Jerusalem. What does Jeremiah say? Surrender to the Babylonians because the time of exile has come. Right? You can imagine the contemporaries of Jeremiah say, you, you false prophet. Right? The Lord is uh, for Jerusalem. I quote Isaiah last time. Right? So, the, the, the words of the prophets are, are really diverse and contextual, but the thrust of the prophetic message is consistently this, to return to wholehearted devotion to God. Sometimes it's blessing, sometimes it's judgment, sometimes it's discipline, sometimes it's love. But all across the, the whole prophetic theme, the trust is restorative, return to wholehearted devotion to God. And this is simply because the Lord does not change. But the people, the medium that he speaks through changes. Right? So why is there this muddiness of the prophetic? And, and I, I have not explicitly referred to this, what it is about, but I think we all kind of know that in the last um, couple of years, we have seen many major prophetic voices come out and take their stance towards certain political parties and political personalities and has caused huge division and disillusionment. Many of the prophetic um, words at that point, if you look back, did not age well at all. Right? And they essentially have been mobilizing the church to certain political agendas. And, and, and why is this the case? If we are, basically our view of prophecy is most influenced by our objective when we approach God. Because prophecy is the medium to encounter God. So if you're going to him with a particular agenda, you will naturally view prophecy as the vehicle for that. So a few examples. If we are primarily in our walk with God, looking for comfort and blessing, prophecy will naturally be about that. Prophecy will invariably, we would select speakers, we would select and we would yes and amen to the things which are about direction and about encouragement. Now hear my heart on this, it is not wrong. What I'm, I'm talking about is our main and only emphasis. If our hearts are, are wedded to a particular political agenda, a party, a person, prophecy will focus on that and prophecy will mobilize the church towards that. But if we are pursuing the living God who will not conform to our human paradigms, prophecy simply is a highway to encounter where we cannot expect what he would say. He might say the angel of the Lord will destroy 185,000 Assyrian soldiers or he might say you are going to exile. You do not know. Um, so what is the essence of the prophetic if you look across history and you cannot pin God down and say God will always talk about this, right? It's overly simplistic to say 1 Corinthians 14, God will always talk about this. You cannot confine him. He's not confined to that, right? What's the essence of the prophetic? Um, if you go to the next slide, um, I think the next one, this is Revelation 19. Revelation 19 verse 10 sums it up. The spirit of prophecy is the witness of Jesus. And to the extent that you can predict Jesus, like how the disciples did, that is the extent you can predict the content of the prophetic, right? It's the revelation of a person of Jesus, right? And through the prophetic, we many aspects of it, and, and, and I don't really have time to unpack it all, 
God will reveal some of these things. How we feel the heart of God, we hear His words, we behold His Son, and we become transformed into His likeness. The prophetic is not just about speaking. It's the whole journey of walking with Him, feeling His heart, hearing Him, seeing Him, being formed into His likeness. Uh, one way to encapsulate it is the passion statement. To be with Him, to become like Him, and to do the things that he did. That is the, 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 the prophetic journey. The, the, the prophets, the prophets were simply with him. They heard him and had a, an, an unmistakable encounter and they became transformed into his likeness, burdened by his zeal against injustice, burdened for his zeal of mercy, and then became a voice. We often focus on the tip of the iceberg, the expression of the prophets, but the prophets all went through the passion statement, right? Genius, really. Okay. Um, so, um, one of the things I think is probably the next slide. Why, why does the Lord re release his prophets? Um, throughout redemptive history, we see that the Lord has al is always faithful and merciful to release a witness prior to releasing judgment. Sin will build up and God has impending judgment. But before that, his pattern is always this. Before the flood, he sends Noah to preach. Before the Exodus, he raises up Moses and Aaron to warn Pharaoh, right? Before he judged Israel and Judah, he sent all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, Hezekiah, you know, uh, all of them. Be before the first coming of Jesus, he sends John the Baptist, in my opinion, the greatest prophet. Um, and before the second coming of Jesus, guess who he sends? He sends us, right? He gives a witness to all the nations, which he calls the church, Right? Um, if you go to the next slide, um, th these are two, um, I believe, related um, passages. Amos 3 summarizes this biblical pattern um, uh, throughout all of, all of history. It says, when the trumpet is blown, in other words, signaling war, are the people not afraid? Does the disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. In other words, before he judges, the Lord will reveal to his servants. And you fast forward to the, the Mount of Olives, uh, Matthew 24, and what does Jesus say, right? And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In other words, the Lord will say, I will withhold the end time judgment and I will not allow humanity to go through that before I establish a compelling witness in all the nations in the church. Do you see that the eschatological end for which it's prophesied in the scripture, is awaiting this one thing, the maturity of the church, into a witness where the Lord can say, a compelling witness has gone forth, and all those who would repent have repented. And, and that is how it kind of all ties together of our mission as a prophetic witness. It's God's mercy call to the world. Yeah. Then it begs the question, okay, so am I a prophet now? Right? I, mean, I mean, if you said that like, you know, the, the, the church as the global entity is the problem, but like, I'm not really like a Jeremiah, right? or I don't really see myself as a John the Baptist. Right? But the, the, the question and the response that I have to, to, that, to that is, what do you think a prophet is? What, what sets apart a normal dude who's just saying stuff that doesn't matter compared to a prophet who's speaking the words of the living God? Like, what is the transitional thing, event, essence, like what sets him apart. I, I believe um, that the foremost defining feature of the prophets is encounter. 
it's not eloquence, it's not a certain ability, it's, it's not anything. It is simply divine grace that God would reveal himself to whoever could be a murderer, Moses. And that encounter would change him from a fugitive, a murderer, to become a prophet of God. If you look throughout the Bible, um, I'll just list a whole bunch of things there for you to chew, right? It, the, the, the pattern is consistent. The word of the Lord came to X, and X became henceforth a prophet, right? Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, Zechariah, John the Baptist, um, the, the, this, the Samuel one is interesting that we, we think of Samuel as one of the foremost prophets and Samuel did not know the Lord until that one event where the word of the Lord is then revealed to him. So you go to the next slide. The, the term prophet can refer to many things throughout all scripture. It's, it's referred to an individual who has been commissioned to represent God and speak his words. It also refers to a community of people in the time of Elijah and Elisha, a community of people set apart for that purpose. It can refer to the written words of God's, uh, written testimony of God's words, called the prophets. First to Jesus himself. Um, but I believe that in our hour, the definition that we really have to grasp, that a prophetic witness refers to us as a community. right? So, okay, if you track with me along, I realize that, okay, sometimes it's quite difficult to track. Huh? So, um, if you track me along, if, I, if, if you accept this, that the defining feature of a prophet is revelation encounter. The word of the Lord is revealed. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your qualifications or disqualifications are. If the word of the Lord has been revealed to you, you are henceforth a prophetic witness. Right? Your identity has been transformed. God has plucked you out and made you a prophetic witness by that sheer fact that the word of the Lord has revealed to you. What does John 1 say? Uh, go to the next slide. John 1. Oh, sorry. Yeah. John 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And what happens? The Word made flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only He came from the Father. In other words, the Word of the Lord that appeared to Jeremiah, to Isaiah, to Samuel, to Moses... John 1 says this one. He has now made flesh and has been revealed to you. Jesus is the word of God, right? And then you are like, okay, Jesus has been revealed to me on a, I don't know what, I mean, hopefully you all don't say that, but it's like on a conceptual level, right? I haven't actually seen him in the same way that Samuel sees the physical word of the Lord before him and calls out, right? But what does John 20 says? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen and yet believe. The, the question, you see, definitionally, your question of do you believe and embrace the identity of a prophetic witness is one almost of salvation. If you believe that the word of the Lord has been revealed to you, your identity is henceforth a prophetic witness. But if you doubt that and say, nope, the word of the Lord has not revealed to you, then who are you to him? Right? So, so I, I just want to rebut that, that accusation to, to kind of disqualify any of us in the thing, right? Um, okay, so now I'm going to give you a really chunky quote um, from a theologian. Um, and you can notice that his sentences has like 60 words inside. <laughs> Love it. Anyway, listen to what Reggie says. 
God is seeking a corporate prophet. Watchmen that see eye to eye and speak the same thing. Albeit in all kinds of different styles, tones and temperaments, often appearing very weak in bodily presence. Their speech is contemptible, you know, rustic, easily dismissed. But why? According to a divine judgment as a design as a judgment on the pride and lofty, which we only think sometimes um, the spiritual, uh, particular impressive speech is spiritual. God only occasionally gives formidable, compelling personalities to carry his word, but actually not many. Many of true born-again evangelicalism is jaded of all the prophets that are being proliferated by popular demand. Now, these voices that God will raise up will perhaps be weaker individually, but no less commanding of public attention by reason of consensus of common witness to manifest fulfillment of prophecy by those who understand among the prophets who are seeing the same things in the scripture, even things being unsealed at the end. Now, this corporate man, which is the church, will lay as much accountability on the nations as any one prophet. Um, I am just going to pass on. Um, there and go to the last one and says this what what are you looking out to see what are you looking for a single man or a corporate entity a many-membered man coming to full stature and here reggie is quoting obviously paul right that 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 the church will come to the fullness and the measure of the stature of christ um I, I recognize that you probably must read this quote like six times before you understand it um it, 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 most people do uh, <laughs> To summarize essentially what, what he's saying here is that we have often looked for a powerful personality and individual and labeled him as the prophet. But what if God is actually in, the, in, in this hour raising up a corporate prophet, a many-membered body who agree and who look individually weak and it's so interesting that Christ would come in the Isaiah fashion, often weak and without comeliness, as a judgment of those who would prize the fleshly things, that God in his wisdom would use that foolishness of the many-membered person to be his corporate witness onto the world. And the devil would, of course, lay an accusation that you're not good enough. Right? God will raise up a one man of God Right? But not you. But what if he's collectively laying the accusation on every single one of us so that we don't come together to fulfill that corporate witness together? And then it begs the question, the yawning divide between where we are now to what Revelation 12 describes the church will be. Right? You're like, okay, I mean, I mean, Elaine, Ivan, pretty awesome. But like, okay, I mean, we see glimpses of that, right? Of how the church would come up and become um, the, that corporate witness in word and in deed, right? But how do we then get to the place? May I suggest some, some, some things that we can do, right? Um, Jeremiah 23, I think if you go to the next slide. Um, this, is what, this is what Jeremiah says. It's a rebuke to the false prophets. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of God. And this is what it asks. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to hear, to see and to hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Now have we considered that the most important aspect of prophecy 
is not speaking, but it's listening. Anyone can speak, but the Lord says, but who among you have stood in my counsel to pay attention to what I have said? So positionally, because theologically, the word of the Lord has been revealed to you and you are a prophetic witness, right? You have been called for that. But the question as individuals is, how many of us have stood in the counsel of God to hear Him? Or have we presupposed that we should be quick to speak and that we have the words and the message to speak, right? We have to cherish this priestly privilege of standing before Him in worship, studying His word, paying attention to not just what He has already said, but what He's saying in the now, right? The encounter is not a singular event. Hearing is not a singular event. It's not like I've heard the Lord before. Someone 10 years ago told me Jesus died for my sin and he rose again. Okay, now I'm a corporate, I'm now a, a prophetic witness. I go around, I just repeat the same thing. No, right? Right? We hear continually. Unless we are walking with him continually and hearing his words continually for that exact second, we cannot genuinely testify of the living person that he is because we're not testifying of a message or philosophy. We're testifying of a living person. And you cannot testify of that unless you have heard him in the now. Just to further build on this, is that we are not so much called to witness a message, right? You're not supposed to memorize four spiritual laws and go around regurgitating it on people, right? So in the same way that no Andre sermon is complete without a Dallas Willard quote, I would be remiss not to quote Samuel Whitfield. Uh, <laughs> go to the next slide. Uh, I think you go to the next one. Next one. Yeah. So so anyway, Samuel has this book which, uh, which which if 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 later on the John the Baptist thing it has has a stirring in you, you might want to check out. It's called Will You Choose the Wilderness? And in it, he says this: the messenger is the message. Western culture tends to prize information. But information can be received in a very superficial way. God values expression over information. Who you are is ultimately demonstrated by what you are, not what you know. A Christian is not only someone who carries information, they must become the embodiment of the message that they carry. I like to suggest that often the Lord does not give us a message. He gives us a messenger. He doesn't give us information. He gives us a witness. He doesn't give the nations a philosophy or religion. He what? He demonstrates that through a people. The prophetic witness of God in the nations is not the, a set of religious beliefs. It's a flesh and blood demonstration of the gospel whom he calls his body. That is the witness, right? Is it then any surprise that when the Lord wants to describe his church, he doesn't just take to writing a description and and. and and there are, you know, apostolic instructions in the epistles about what the church is to be. But primarily his medium of instruction is to send a people as an example. Now, the most profound example that the church is meant to emulate, I believe, are, are these two, uh, are Daniel and John the Baptist. It's really interesting that actually if you look at all scripture, um, most of the biblical characters are actually portrayed in all of their texture with their flaws. Like think about like Moses, David, etc. But Daniel and John the Baptist are actually one of the few, very few exceptions where it's portrayed almost flawless. 
it's, it's an interesting clue, I believe, in the Bible where he's actually giving us a prototype of what the end-time church, who is what, without spot or wrinkle, meant to walk into. So, anyway, you must indulge me because I only preach once a year and I will give you a bunny trail. If you go to the next slide, class, see, see this, this like, you got to kind of thing, right? So I introduced a new category called bunny trail. Anyway, um, bunny trail is, Hannah told me I need to explain this because she's like, what? Nobody understand what is a bunny trail. Bunny trail is when you open the scroll and you're meant to like go one direction and then it's like, oh my goodness, there's this thing and it leads you down like Alice in Wonderland, Alice in Wonderland and then leads you down this trail and then who knows where you go. Okay, anyway. So, but this is not a bunny trail. If you follow it, it will bring you in a completely different direction. It will bring you back one round, but we don't have time for that. But, I'd like to suggest this, that if we have not considered this, we need to. Um, that the prophetic and the prophet is deeply intertwined with the priestly ministry. Um, the first person, and this is like biblical trivia for you, the first person to be called a prophet is actually Abraham in Genesis 20. It's really interesting. Um, uh, the Lord tells Abimelech, go find Abraham for he is a prophet and he will pray for you and you shall live. Right? Notice that the first instance of the a prophet or the prophetic is not predicting the future. It's one in the context of intercession for mercy, mediating between God and man through prayer and proclaiming that your sins are forgiven. That's the priestly ministry. Right? So that's Abraham. Second one, you go to Elijah. Elijah is standing on Mount Carmel confronting 450 prophets of Baal. And who does he say he is? his prophetic credentials that he states, I am Elijah who stands before the Lord. Stands before the Lord is actually a priestly term. It's a term that's used to describe the Levitical ministry in Deuteronomy as well as 1 Samuel. Stand before to minister unto God as how a priest does. Right? It's then no coincidence that the greatest prophet of all, which we shall touch on, John the Baptist, is from a priestly line. Consistently, if you study the book of Malachi, the Lord sends prophets to restore the priesthood. And that is the, the, the crisis that, that the prophet Malachi uh, describes, that the priesthood has failed and I'll send a messenger to restore it all and I'll prepare the way before the Lord comes. Okay, so anyway, this is, a, I, I, I've been feeling this for some time that like actually for anyone who is struggling with calling, I've, I felt this like that, that this bunny trail is for you. Study what the priesthood is because this is your calling. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Going on. Dumba, the actual sermon. <laughs> the, the title of my sermon is, oh goodness, a church like John the Baptist. Okay, sorry. Okay, la, this is like the halfway point. Okay, so um, a church like John the Baptist. Okay, uh, let me drink water. Okay, so what is the prophetic witness that we're called to be? It's like John the Baptist. Okay, so now let's go full on John the Baptist, okay? We, we think about who do, you, who do you think John the Baptist is? Who do you go out to the wilderness to see, right? Um, we think of him as some doomsday prophet, right? Don't know whether you watch Chosen. He looks pretty crazy in that TV series. It's like he has long, unkempt hair. He's wearing camel skin, not really trendy. He's like, hasn't shaved in like ages and just like swatting bugs and just eating beetles as he's walking around. And everyone he sees like brood of vipers, right? And it's like, we're like, it's not really kind of a guy whom I think I want to grow up to be like. Yeah, so 
because of that kind of um, image, we don't really pay much attention to him. Furthermore, none of John's sermons are really recorded in detail. He doesn't have any like dreams or prophecies per se. And so sometimes John the Baptist is kind of like, oh, you know, like it's like this like transitional figure, relevant uh, for that six months, and then Jesus come back, and then Jesus is much more important, right? So we don't really pay much attention to him, okay? Um, but I like to suggest that God is actually drawing our attention to the man that John was, and not so much what he said. And if the mystery of Christ's coming has been stretched out into two, right? That he's come one time, he's coming a second time, and John was the faithful one to prepare the way for his first coming, it then becomes very logical that if we see ourselves as a prophetic witness to prepare the earth for his second coming, that we will look to John, who was faithful in that. Now, if you look at, um, I think it's the previous one, sorry, this, this is not the uh, previous one again. <laughs> ah, okay, correct, thank you. Um, so John's life was highly anticipated. Everyone expects great things from John. Do you know that John is the only prophet whose, for, whose birth is foretold by other prophets? Oh, interesting. Um, the, the prophet said that this, there will be a prophet coming who will prepare the way of the Lord. The angel Gabriel appears like what? Four times in the Bible. Twice to Daniel to reveal a revelation of Jesus. Right? One to Mary, birth of Christ. And the second one to Elizabeth, the birth of John the Baptist. So quite a big deal, right? Your birth is announced by angel Gabriel. Typical pattern of a supernatural birth. Mother is barren and old, cannot give birth one. Supernatural, okay? John is also filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, right? So think about it. He has all these prophetic swirls about his birth and then he's filled with the Holy Spirit from birth and he doesn't follow in his father Zechariah's priestly line, his inheritance, but he gives up priest training to be a priest in Jerusalem. And he goes what? He goes to the Jordanian wilderness and he stays there for 30 years, right? And, and scripture is like quite mysterious about what he's up to there until the word of the Lord comes to him. So you can feel scripture is building up this expectation. Oh my goodness, this guy's going to do great things. And he's so hyped that actually if you look at the content of his sermons, there's quite a lot of times he's going around telling people, I'm not the Messiah. Right? How many people, we have so many people going around saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, right? He's like, this guy is like, I'm not the Messiah, guys. He's like, why? Because people thought he was, right? So 30 years in the wilderness, um, summarized just simply as this, the child grew strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of the public appearance to Israel. Now, I don't know whether you've been to the Jordanian wilderness, but it is hot. It is like burn a hole in corn's pants hot. Like cons go to Israel and the sun is so hot, it burns a hole in her pants. Like it's sweltering, like it's unbearable, right? The word for the wilderness in there is uninhabitable desert, right? And that's what, the, that's what uh, Torah describes it, that the Israelites wandered around in the uninhabitable wilderness sustained only by the Lord. And so all of this 30 years, right, what is he doing there, right? M many of us look at that 30 years and we think, He's preparing for a great ministry. 30 years in the secret, charging up mana. So that six months, boom! Right? But actually, if you look at his life, okay, six to 18 months of public ministry, didn't lead any major movement. He lived in a small community outside of the city. No recorded miracles. No recognition by the religious establishment. Wasn't even invited to be one of Jesus' 12 apostles. And he died before he saw the fruit of his labor. 
like not really a great CV, right? Right. So all the hype, and then for what, right? What was there to show for, right? And I suspect that is the reason why we have not really been so enamored by John's life, right? How, 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 so many people want to be like a Samuel or a Daniel or whatever, but how many people say, I want to be like John the Baptist? But listen to Jesus' evaluation of John. Um, this is the next slide, Luke 7. Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John, and he asked this question. What do you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? No. What do you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who... Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. So what do you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you more than a prophet. This is the one of whom it's written in the scroll of Malachi. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is Jesus' evaluation of John the Baptist. Now, I've kind of adapted what there's this guy, David Guzik, you know, uh, it's like, um, he publishes a lot of like stuff online. Um, it's this four S's um, about Jesus' evaluation. I'm not really sure if you can see it, but basically purple, right? He's, Jesus is asking rhetorical questions. What do you go out to see? Is he like a man swayed by the reed? John was steady. He wasn't shaken easily like, like, like a reed. He wasn't swayed by the opinion of man by the pressure of power, by the seduction of fame, John was a man of focus and steadfast resolve. John was a sober man. He chose intentionally to live a disciplined life in the harsh Jordanian desert. He laid aside good to have, comforts, luxuries to fulfill his call as a consecrated one. He was sent as a prophet and a messenger of the Lord. Now, I just want to pause here a bit to say that I think a lot of times when we embrace that paradigm of preparation for fruit, 30 years of preparation in the wilderness for six months of public ministry, it sets us up for disappointment. John didn't really have the fruit. At the end of his life, I mean, before Luke 7, he's, John is actually asking the question, are you the one or should we expect another? And Jesus, like, we'll go on to that later, but Essentially, he comes to the end of his life and there is real doubt about the fruit because God did not work in the timeline in the way that he expects. And if we were to anchor our affections on the fruit, trusting that God will bring a fruit after a certain uh, time of preparation, rather than anchoring our hope on our mission, the fact that you were sent, we set ourselves with disappointment. Is it enough for you that the Lord has called you to do a certain thing, regardless if there is fruit? If the Lord has told you to lead a church, even if there's no fruit in your lifetime, is that sufficient for you? If the Lord says, I want you to build me a house of prayer, and that is his assignment and his calling for you, even if there's no fruit, is that enough? Because that was the thing that John the Baptist had to grapple with. Is it sufficient for you that my prophet Malachi told you that you would prepare my way for you, but you would die before you would see me come into my kingdom? And John had a grapple with this to say that it's sufficient for me, right? As a servant, to say that it's not about my ministry, my vindication, the fact that I know that I was up to the mark, but that you would have your reward. And he was willing to fade into the background after six months of public ministry. His disciples are going and they're freaking out. They're like, everyone, 
that you've this that 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 were baptized by you is now going to that guy, right? And he's like, go. It's not about me, right? He lived to serve and he gave everything away. If he viewed his 30 years as a preparation for his time of ministry, you can imagine it would be quite hard to let go. It's like, huh? So short on here, right? But he gave everything because he was a priest in the wilderness and that's the bunny trail, right? So Jesus calls him the greatest prophet, right? Matthew 11, another parallel passage, almost exactly the same. For one simple reason, you go to the next slide, that all the prophets in the past looked forward to this day and proclaimed God is coming, but John had the privilege of looking at the Lamb of God and proclaiming God is here. It's an eschatological privilege of time and space that he was the greatest prophet. <clears throat> but why did Jesus say, but the least of those in the kingdom of God is greater than he? That's the mysterious thing. Right? And a lot of times we, we, we talk about, oh, you know, you know um, it's because we function in the New Covenant and, and then like, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. So John is born of a woman. That, that's, that's simply not true because John's filled with the Spirit since birth. I don't think anyone will come out here and say, I got more of the Holy Spirit than John. Mm-hmm. Tough, tough, um, tough call to make. So, so what do I actually think he's saying here? That those who are least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is not talking about worth. Like you are worth and you are greater, you are better than John. Right? He's talking about privilege. John was given the greatest privilege in the Old Covenant. Now, in the Old Covenant, you remember Jesus' discourse with Nicodemus in John 3. Those who are born of the flesh, the flesh gives birth to the flesh. But he who wants to enter the kingdom of God must be born by the Spirit and water. So there's a contrast here between the Old and the New Covenant. Right? John was given the greatest privilege in the Old Covenant to be born of flesh and women to prepare the way of God in the flesh. But those in the new covenant, i.e. us and the church throughout history, will have a greater privilege to prepare for the second coming. The coming of God. Those who are born in his kingdom, essentially, will build on John's testimony of proclaiming God is here. Now, the question that we have to grapple with is, do we believe the words of God when he says, your witness and your privilege is greater than John's? In the same way that John would prepare the nation for his first coming, that your privilege and your witness will be greater than John, even the least of these. And so John is a transitional figure. Like, don't, don't get me wrong, John is not just a prophet in the old covenant. John is the first fruit of the new covenant. So he's that transitional figure. He's both a, a prophet of the old and the new. And he's the guy who picks up from Malachi and, and, and comes out and fulfills that. It's super interesting. If you want to go deeper into this, in order to understand John, you really have to understand the whole book of Malachi. Now, I'm going to go, I mean, hopefully you're not asleep right now, but like, I'm going to go into the, the last few parts where it's like seven parallels between John the Baptist and the church, right? And, and I think that will shed light on some of the things which we are called to. Okay, so John and the church, parallels. First parallel, both were filled with the Holy Spirit since birth, right? We know that for John the Baptist. When was the church birth on Pentecost? Marked by the filling of the Holy Spirit, right? So your definitionally, your identity filled with the Holy Spirit. Second, 
Number two, both didn't bring a new message. We associate the prophetic witness with bringing a new snazzy word, a new message. No, John didn't bring a new message. Every question that was posed to him, he answered in the words of the prophets, right? He diligently studied the words of God until he became not just a witness, he didn't just know what was written, he became the very person that was prophesied about. That is the church's destiny. Do you realize that the scripture prophesies about you, right? As a corporate identity. We are not pressured to come up with new stuff, right? Not a new message. Our role is to take what has been written and become that. Number three, both were priests in the wilderness when the priesthood in Jerusalem was corrupt, right? Back in John's days, the priesthood still kind of functioned but was corrupt and John retreated to the wilderness to be that faithful priest that God would desire. Today, what we see is that for a large majority, and I don't want to, 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 to emphasize um, the, the fact that obviously there is a Jewish remnant who has been faithful throughout all of history for the sake of God. He, his heart desires that, and that must happen. But by and large, Israel has rejected Jesus. In other words, the original priestly nation has failed and are living in a place where they do not embrace the, the chief cornerstone, the builders, Right, have rejected the chief cornerstone. And so what does the Lord do? He raises up a witness and a faithful priest in the wilderness of the nations. And this is Ezekiel's terminology. I will scatter you to the wilderness of the nations. So in all the wilderness, he then raises up what? Gentile priests, people who are like way unqualified. And he says, they're going to be my prophetic witness. They're going to be my priests. When the priesthood has failed in Jerusalem and I don't receive the honor that's due in my sanctuary and my eternal resting place, in the wilderness, I will raise up a priesthood in the most unlikely place. Number four, this priest in the wilderness then proclaims the coming of God with clarity and faithfulness. And he's saying there's coming a day where, in the words of Malachi, the messenger of the covenant the Lord himself will suddenly come into his temple. He's returning to Jerusalem with speed and with urgency and you need to repent because he's coming and the day of his judgment is here. And number five, and this is a tender thing, which is that if you look at, um, if, you, if you go to Luke 7 and you read the earlier parts, John is trapped in prison and he's, he asks his disciples to go to um, Jesus and ask, you know, um, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or should we expect another? And the reason for that is not trivial, right? The reason for that is because Jesus at that point of time did not fulfill all of the prophecies that Messiah is supposed to. Um, and if you examine and you study Jesus' response to him, he says, go and report to John what you see, um, that the, the blind see, that the deaf hear, that the lame walk, and the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the poor. He's quoting Isaiah and he omits this one line, which is, and the prisoners are loosed. And he's telling that to a man who has been faithful all his life um, and he, who is in Herod's cell awaiting to be beheaded. And it's that offense that Jesus gives him. One could even say Jesus misquotes scripture, right? Or he's saying that not now. And instead, he substitutes that line and he tells John, but blessed is he who is not offended in me. The walk to be with God as a prophetic witness 
doesn't necessarily mean we will understand the details and the timings. We have this misunderstanding that if you are functioning in the prophetic, you understand, you know it all. Oftentimes, that's not the case. The Lord is not going to explain everything to, to you or me. But the, the, the encouraging thing about John is that you didn't require an understanding of everything about, John's, uh, about God's plan to fulfill his calling. He could still be blessed despite not understanding it all. And how many of us are in that place? Where we look at our assignment and we look at the fruit and we say we don't understand it and we're like, should we keep going? And the Lord is saying, blessed is he who's not offended in me. Is it sufficient that you are called? And number six is this. John didn't see the fulfillment of all that he spoke of. In fact, John in his, in his cell was likely wondering, did I, did I confront Herod too soon? Did I fail in my mission to prepare Israel for him? Well, some will argue no, because Israel crucified him, right? Um, he didn't see the fulfillment of all that he hoped for. But he lived with a singular purpose, um, that Jesus would receive his inheritance. And number seven, um, which is this, both John as well as the church will, in the midst of all the options, choose this one thing, to be identified with the desire of the bridegroom, to be called as a friend of the bridegroom. John 3. Just want to zoom in on this because we're kind of running out of time. I think it says eight minutes over time. Um, John 3 says this, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Um, yeah, I'm just contending, uh, and maybe Gideon wants to come up. <laughs> I'm just contending that, that, that we become a church that that becomes that friend of the bridegroom like John. That even if we're standing um, in the place where we don't understand the details of his plan, that we embrace his desire, and we become a church that makes his dream of his heart our priority. The question that confronts us is today, who has stood in the counsel of God to hear the dream of his heart? Have we primarily gone to God for our stuff? Like, God, this is what I want. This is my troubles. But who has stood in the counsel of God to say, God, what's the dream of your heart? And I'll give my life so that you can have that. And that it's his joy, his inheritance, his desire, his dream that captivates us. And it's not so much a message, but it's a man that God gives us. John is the prototype of the church that says, the dream of my heart is to be with you to see you receive the glory that you deserve. It doesn't matter what it costs me. I'll lay down my ambitions, you know, my ability to be a priest, my dreams, my wants. I'll lay down my comforts, my luxuries. I'll give everything for love because I saw one who's worthy. It doesn't matter whether anyone knows my name. It doesn't matter if I get ridiculed, people think I'm crazy. 2,000 years later, they still think I'm this crazy person wearing camel skin. It doesn't matter if man's evaluation of me is you failed and that you didn't live up to your potential. It doesn't matter if you die before you see it. That when we look at a man, that it's worth it. That we look at the man and we say, he's worth it. And we will come to that place of the Levites would say that... You are my inheritance. 
You know, Levites didn't have any inheritance. They, they portioned the land of Israel, and they say, all the tribes, you can have this land, you can have this land. This land represents your livelihood and your security, a tangible aspect of the covenant. And the Levites, the priests, God says, you have no land. I alone will be your inheritance. And I feel like I can't presume to tell you what to do here. The Lord just didn't give me anything for this. To tell you what, what you should do, you know, go and serve at safe place. Go and volunteer here. Go and share the gospel with your colleague. Lay this down, I don't know. He'll lead you to all kinds of things. But the thing that I feel just today, um, to ask you this question that what does wholehearted surrender look like? What does it mean for us to become like John the Baptist? To look at his dream and have it captivate us and to just lay it all down before him and say, God, I desire that you would receive the dream of your heart. Yeah, so Father, we just pray. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see the beauty of the Son of Man? Would you not consider equality with God something to be grasped? But took on the form of a man, the servant prophesied by Isaiah, with no form or comeliness that we should desire, and humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. the Holy Spirit you would give us eyes to see once again the beauty of this man that you are worthy come and receive the church that you deserve people who are wholehearted, consecrated before you, who lay down our ambitions, our rights, everything before you, and say, we identify as priests, we identify as friends of the bridegroom, we identify as a prophetic witness for you, God. That is the dream of our heart, that you will be made known. It's the dream of our heart that you will return soon. That we are not content with our lives. That we will embrace the wilderness. We don't want the luxuries in the palace. We don't want to be swayed like the reed. We want to be faithful in a way that we prepare for you we desire to be with you. You are our inheritance. We ask all this in Jesus' name.